0: Today's conversation is brought to you by Brotherhood Mutual Insurance Company, a leading national provider of ministry-focused insurance and services. Headquartered in Fort Wayne, Indiana, Brotherhood Mutual has a heart for serving the church and keeping ministries thriving. For more information, visit brotherhoodmutual.com.
1: And so I think we need to take another look at how our younger people, especially, our people today are being, in a sense, discipled in a digital age, right? Discipled in an age that's very different. And being discipled by messages uh, that are somewhat different um, in terms of what is good, what is right, what is evil, what is not evil, etc. And, and so just it's a very challenging time to do Christian ministry.
0: Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE President. In these conversations, we seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. This conversation zeroes in on what evangelism and the proclamation of the gospel looks like in today's culture. Julius Kim, who is the president of the Gospel Coalition, offers really valuable content for pastors and every Christian. Listen in. Julius, what a gift it is to be able to talk with you today. Um, so as president of the Gospel Coalition, you are in the thick of what it means to try to be faithfully engaged with culture. Uh, so thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me, Walter. What a privilege to be with you.
0: Um, for those who aren't familiar, could you share a little bit about the Gospel Coalition and what drives you as you lead this organization?
1: Yeah. Thank you for that, Walter. The, the Gospel Coalition is essentially a coalition of like-minded evangelical churches that have come together for the sake of helping the church renew its faith in the gospel and to reform ministry in light of the gospel. And so our founders, Don Carson, Dr. Don Carson from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, 40 years and teaching New Testament, et cetera, et cetera, and Tim Keller, former founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, well, these two brothers got together in the early 2000s or so and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm having these kinds of issues in the church. And I'm, I'm being asked all these questions about the relationship between church and culture. And I'm, I'm discovering that I'm having a difficult time just solving these issues by myself. How about you? And like, yeah, me too. And so in light of that, they said, well, why don't we try to work together and bring some of our friends who are also pastors and leaders in the evangelical church for the sake of saying, hey, are you are you experiencing these challenges too? And what can we do together uh, for the sake of being centered on the gospel, et cetera? And so that's really how the Gospel Coalition was founded just two men with the desire to help one another uh, being centered on the gospel. And that's, that's the name really captures really the essence of the organization, the Gospel Coalition. It's a coalition of pastors and leaders. That want to just be recentered on the gospel as opposed to other things, and so at the beginning they they got together to talk and pray, and they kind of they did a conference together. But then they launched the website, and then everything changed. And then in God's mysterious providence, um, it's created a huge platform for us to provide resources uh, for the for the global church in light of this this vision uh, for gospel centrality for all of life. So that's kind of the gospel coalition. And I'm I'm privileged now to be the second president Don Carson. One of our founders was the first president Then he retired from his role at the seminary and at at the gospel coalition. And then I've been leading now for about two and a half years. Um, Yeah, basically during COVID, uh, I became president. So it's had its unique share of challenges, but really thankful for the opportunity.
0: Julius, you've alluded to the fact that the Gospel Coalition has really blossomed into a global resource and all sorts of material that's being presented. And those materials reflect issues that pastors throughout the country and throughout the world are struggling with, grappling with. So from your perspective, take us out to the big picture. How would you assess the evangelical movement today?
1: Wow. How many minutes are you going to give me for this question, Walter? As you you and I both know, as, as you're leading your organization, and even as a local church pastor and as a, as a parent trying to help, you know, for me, um, perhaps the analogy of my... Raising of my daughters who are, you know, 22 and 20 might be a good way to kind of, in a kind of microcosmic way to talk about some of the issues that I see exponentially, let's say, in the broader evangelical world. Because, you know, as a dad, as a Christian dad who wants to raise his children well, you know, what the the kind of questions and the challenges they face as Christians in this world is very different from the ones that I faced. And yet at the same time, there's really nothing new under the sun either. Uh, And so... I'm trying to wisely along with my wife help our daughters not only be good humans in this world but ultimately good Christians in this world. And what does that look like especially in light of some of the unique challenges that we're facing whether it's the rise of secularism, the rise of expressive individualism, the rise of irreligion, the rise of trying to create a a story of our life without even moral absolutes. You know there's so many various challenges, and then to make things a little bit more concrete, issues related to sexuality, sexual identity, politics, and as as my daughters are inundated with all of these challenges, you know, trying to be trying to get answers to that in a one and a half hour block on a Sunday when they go to church, and another way of saying that is to try to be discipled to to know how to respond rightly to all these challenges based on a discipleship program that lasts for an hour and a half on a Sunday is really, really difficult. In fact, in fact, you know, to somehow expect evangelicals today to somehow be prepared and equipped to to answer some of these challenges of life by going to church on a Sunday. Now, now when I say that, that doesn't mean you shouldn't go to church on Sunday. Of course you should, but they're being evangelized and discipled more than ever because of technology, social media and these kinds of stories that they're now being drawn to and being influenced by are not the plan kind of places and the stories that influenced i think me i'm i'm in my 50s now growing up and so i think we need to take another look at how our younger people especially our people today are being in a sense discipled in a digital age right discipled in an age that's very different and being discipled by messages uh, that are somewhat different um, in, in terms of what is good, what is right, what is evil, what is not evil, et cetera. And, and so just it's a very challenging time to do Christian ministry. And, and I think for us at the Gospel Coalition to compound that, you know, we're an organization that reaches, I don't know, on our website, 35 million unique users on our website, but that's 40, 45% of them are international. And the questions that they ask are very different too. And so, Yeah, it's a a definite challenge, but, you know, the evangelical church today are facing some old challenges, but in new wineskins, maybe, but also some new challenges in in terms of, you know, how they know what the, the epistemological challenge, you know, how do they know what is right and wrong, but also are the stories that they're hearing from technology and social media and in their world, are these stories good? Beautiful. If not, why and why not? And are there other stories that we need to be telling that are better? So, I don't know. That's maybe that's a little rambling there, Walter. But um, those are the kinds of questions that I'm asking myself, along with my wife, as we prayerfully think about how do we help our two daughters as they're now getting into adulthood—twenty-two and twenty. You know, to to meet some of these challenges and stay rooted in the in the in the timeless truths of of the Word of God and. Rooted and, and centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ that actually meets answers a lot of the questions that they're asking they just don't know how to connect the dots. And so I feel like at the gospel coalition part of our job is to help people connect the dots help people see that they belong to a bigger story a grander narrative. That could actually help them understand and navigate their way through a lot of what our the challenges our world is throwing at us.
0: Julius, you've given us a lot to ponder just in these opening comments. And I feel in many ways, uh, we're just going to be spending our time unpacking what you just said. And so I want to unpack what you just said, and we'll pick a few things and we'll circle back to some other things. But you used a very compelling imagery uh, that we are uh, being evangelized and discipled, but in reverse that uh, there are influences that are evangelizing and discipling uh the next generation of christians uh our current generation um and you've named a few influences uh, secularism and individualism uh, more relative uh, you know relativism and, and i want to come back and and unpack that what are the ways in which these isms are evangelizing and discipling the church. And can you make that a little bit more concrete for us?
1: Yeah, again, I don't want to get too off track here. And if I do, just let me know, Walter. But I, I guess one of the simplest ways of saying it is that we're our young people, me, right, all of us, we're being told through media especially that there's no objective truth. That's just one, one area in which we're losing sight of of objectivity, largely because of the influence of postmodernism, right? Postmodernism over the last 40, 50 years, I mean, you can go all the way back to people like Sartre or Camus and others who are challenging our, the nature of reality and whether or not one can actually say, this is real, this is not, this is good, this is bad. Uh, and so the postmodern kind of, kind of program has 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 devolved, for a lack of better words, into a system in which there is no objectivity. Now, all of us have talked about that, you know, over the years in our, when we went to university and we go to, you know, our college classrooms and we can't, we can't know objective truth um, because all of these, you know, ev- postmodernism says everything needs Everything needs to be critiqued. Everything needs to be questioned. And and so in light of that, you know, when, when a preacher goes up on a Sunday to preach to my girls and say the Bible is the standard of objective truth, uh, the Bible says this about reality, the Bible says this is good, the Bible says this is evil, you know, that it's it's much more difficult, you know, um, project for a preacher to do that, especially to a generation that's been told over and over again, there is no such thing as objective truth. And so for me, I think our challenge is to meet meet our young people where they are in light of these assumptions that they're holding regarding the objective reality of truth. And and not just assume that there's these categories for them that we all agree on, but actually you have to start farther back. And I think You know, for example, evangelism in the 80s and 90s, for example, I remember when I was growing up, one of the things that I learned was, you know, evangelism explosion. I don't know if you remember that program. And it's a good program. And, Mm -hmm. you know, but as you know, it started off with certain assumptions, like if you were to die and go to heaven today and you met St. Peter and Peter said, why should I let you in? What should you say? You know, good question. But that in the 80s had certain assumptions about people who knew about these distinctions between heaven and hell, the reality even of heaven and hell, the reality of somebody named Peter, St. Right? Peter. Nowadays, you have people who not only question the assumption of objective reality, but have no biblical categories, no kind of religious categories, let alone biblical categories. They're, in, in one sense, they're biblically illiterate, right? And furthermore, instead of thinking people as being, you know, kind of blank slates on which we write Information, write new stories about the gospel, about the li- about life in in Christ, etc. You know, we actually have to now. I think presuppose certain categories of thinking. What can we call it? A worldview, something like that. And actually, say your current worldview in which you operate from your life actually needs to be deconstructed. And say, actually, if you if you carry out logically the way you think about reality, it actually kind of Reduces to inconsistency, absurdity, etc. Now, we, I wouldn't use those terms, of course, but you have to tell people we all live according to certain stories, assumptions about reality, and and so I think our ev- because of the evangelism that's being taught in our social media, in technology, on TV, on magazines, all these things that are now evangelizing our children and our young people. We have to know that these young people are no longer blank slates, that they have certain convictions about the lack of objectivity of truth, for example, and that we actually have to meet them where they are, not only with a deconstructive way of thinking about helping them deconstruct their worldviews, even before we can reconstruct a biblical worldview. In addition to that, let me say one more thing, since I'm thinking about it, Walter. You know now we're just talking about series of propositions and talking about apologetics and you know that could be a good good and helpful thing, but another thing that i've discovered just talking with my girls. Is that we're facing a generation where authenticity and care and compassion are really important themes for this generation. And, and I think before you know I think when we thought about apologetics and evangelism we just you know what if we just lay out these propositions and break down their assumptions clearly they'll believe right. It's an evidence that demands a verdict kind of thing, right? Now, again, nothing wrong with that, but people don't even wanna to talk to Christians anymore. People don't trust Christians anymore because a lot of Christians over the last, I don't know, couple decades, they talk a good talk, but they haven't walked the talk. If Christianity and the gospel truly is not only true, but also beautiful, and how come I don't see any beauty in your lives, in the way you care for the oppressed, for the marginalized, do you really care about the down and out, for those who are undergoing difficulties, whether through poverty or racial injustice or et cetera? And so, I think Christians have not helped themselves, frankly, in in creating a a, a posture that lacks the humility that's absolutely necessary, I think, for evangelism as well. So, I just want to make sure that as we're talking, we're not losing sight of, you know, in addition to talking about these propositional truths and and epistemological categories that are really important that we never lose sight of. We also need to gain a hearing just by living as just true Christians, which starts with loving each other and loving our world around us. So loving God and loving neighbor, it's actually that that kind of simple. And yet I think we've lost track of that. And I think so in addition to maintaining the integrity of the word of God and, and integrity and clarifying, uh, for, uh, 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 for a people that need the gospel, I think we also need to just be, have a posture of kindness and uh, I, the word I come to mind is just like decency, you know, and winsomeness. And so in summary, if I can just summarize, we need the integrity uh, of the gospel, but we also need the clarity of communicating to people that think differently than before. We also, I think need humility in our posture. Um, wow, that's pretty good, those three things. Huh?
0: That preaches. It just kind of came to me. <laughs> Integrity, clarity, humility, that, yeah. that preaches, that's, that's that's really good. And, Thank um, you. You know, Julius, again, you've given us so much and there's any thread that I could tug at and pull it a little bit and it draws it out some more. Um, I want to tug on the evangelism part a little bit. So if we're in this process of having to deconstruct in order to reconstruct, if we are having to rethink and re-disciple uh, in our new kind of postmodern modern context, um, and on top of that, uh, that we are being counter-evangelized, so to speak, Then what prospect, what hope is there for actually doing the work of evangelism when there's so much internal work that needs to be done first? Do you sense that the commitment uh, of the evangelical movement to make God known, to bring others into this kind of saving relationship, knowledge of Jesus, do you sense that this has lessened or changed in some way as evangelicals have moved from the center of culture to the margins, as we've really had to struggle through and think through the deconstruction of our own uh, way of thinking about the faith before we can even reconstruct it. I mean, you've given us so much. How could we ever get to the evangelism part if there's so much internal work that needs to be done?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I in short, I don't know the exact answer, but I think the the way I've been thinking about that that idea is this way, Walter. I think Christians, as they think about evangelizing the world and more specifically about its relationship to culture, right? This kind of church and culture relationship, you know, as you know, as a, as a careful student of history as well, the, the, the church has always responded in various ways, right? You either flee, right? Flee from culture because this culture is irredeemable, right? So you, you just kind of run away, right? And th- that's the way we ought to live as Christians, right? To flee. Or the other way is to We need to change culture by dominating culture right by gaining more power and privilege and if we gain more power especially through political processes that's how we're going to change culture that's how we're going to evangelize and and i I think we've seen both of those kinds of impulses in the history of the church right and you've also seen how damaging that has been to the church and to the gospel witness right fleeing from culture what You wouldn't, you would never do that to your children, you wouldn't flee from your children when they're needy, nor would you want to dominate your children in such a way that you wouldn't help nurture them in a way to grow and to recognize the unique qualities in our children and grow them, you know, in our process. And so I just think that right now, what I'm seeing are, are, are both kind of impulses, unfortunately, both of those impulses to either flee, or to dominate. And I think Where I'm hopeful, Walter, is that the gospel actually answers both of those kind of impulses. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because the the gospel actually says, no, we're not going to flee because we're called to be salt and light. Because Jesus was salt and light. Jesus didn't flee. He actually entered into our existence and became man himself, though sinless, so that we could be redeemed through him. So he gives us, the gospel gives us the antidote to that. And the same is the power thing, right? the power move. Mm Jesus, he could have easily came as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and said, "Okay, this is how we're going to operate now. All you idiots that try to ruin, try to run society, I'm going to come as the next King of Israel, right? And I'm going to wipe out the Romans. I'm going to wipe out all these pagans." He didn't. He came as a suffering servant, recognizing that through humility, through kindness, will repentance be done. It's actually through dying that there's life. And so again, here's where the gospel answers both these twin impulses of fleeing and not engaging or over-engaging through power, right? Mm -hmm. And the gospel then comes and says, no, it's actually something different. Mm -hmm. And it's actually really, it's true and it's beautiful. And so that's why even in light of some of the, you know, Walter, you sure you could talk about from your vantage point, how especially over the last, I don't know, six years, maybe since the elections of 2016, have there's been a lot of conversations and and frankly, not many of them very helpful about the role of politics, especially in the United States and, and, and its place in the Christian life and in our churches and the evangelical church. And in my humble opinion, I just don't think we've done a very good job of not only conversing about it, but putting politics in the right perspective. And this is where, again, the gospel brings just clarity and light, and not heat, and 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 that's why I'm hopeful that if we continue to stay grounded on what the gospel is, especially on who Jesus is and what He's done, it actually provides us with some answers, but also with some hope to not give up.
0: Mm. All right, I'm going to um, draw this out a little bit, Julius. There, there is—you've named it. This uncomfortable, confusing relationship. That Christians, uh, Christ followers have with politics, sometimes uh, fleeing, sometimes an overrealized use of power. In some churches, some communities, there's a ton of engagement, but on a few different topics. In other communities, there's um, a broad set of really light engagement on a lot of different topics. Um, others just, as you talk about, completely withdraw you know never really preach on contemporary cultural issues. Uh, you know, maybe because of the backlash that would happen and the few attempts that uh, have been made. So draw this out for us. I mean, what are the responsibilities and what are some principles that churches can pursue? And I'm not simply talking about what would be preached. Uh, You know, let's throw in, the way we think about small groups or adult education or seminars or pointing people to other resources, give us a way forward. You talked about the gospel as this way forward, but draw this out a little bit more in our imagination.
1: Yeah. Again, I, I, even as you ask that question, I'm, I'm like, I'm humbled because I just don't think I have all the answers and, and in many ways I find myself as a pastor, as a preacher, as a former professor, and as a leader. I just copy others and I, I, I learn from others and hopefully I cite them well in my footnotes, etcetera. But for me again, a lot of these a lot of this comes from the influence of both Don and Tim, Don Carson and Tim Cars Tim Keller. And especially if you go to our website and you look under our foundation documents, we have a really, really clarifying what we call our theological vision for ministry. That actually is like, okay, then what does that look like? So you believe all these things, which is great, but what does this look like? This gospel centrality, this really being this, this unique relationship between church and church and state, etc. What does that look like? And so I just I will just refer listeners to that theological vision from ministry but my way of summarizing that and maybe giving you some tangible things is this I think let me start by saying generally that we have to prioritize what God himself prioritizes first right so I think I think one of the things that's we've where we've gone wrong I think over the last I don't know 10 years or so is that we've lost sight of the right prioritization of the things that we ought to be prioritizing as Christian leaders and as Christian churches and I think I don't, I don't know, and as I think about especially the role of politics in our lives and, and how to rightly place it, I think for some, and let me just speak for myself. For myself, I feel like politics is getting a more higher priority in our conversations, in our convictions, and even the way we do ministry than it should. Now, does that mean that we should be politically disengaged? Of course not, right? We, we need to be thoughtful Christians about the, our, our role in society and how we relate to one another etc and, and that's good and we want to use as many biblical uh, insights and wisdom and principles and the implications of those to help us think carefully about and live rightly and live justly in light of those principles but for some reason i think things have just got turned around a little bit and i think in a well-intentioned desire to really help people understand, I think a lot of biblical truths and what God wants in our world, for some reason, even that good motivation has led to some ways of relating to not only to politics, but relating to even one another as Christians, it has just led us astray. And I think part of the reason why is because we've misplaced the priority of politics in the way we do our ministry. And so the first thing I would say is, you know, are we prioritizing what God himself prioritizes? What are the most important things we need to be doing as a church? And let's focus on that first and let's make sure we're doing that really well, like corporate worship, preaching the good news of the gospel from every passage of scripture, you know, engaging in discipleship around the word, loving one another, caring for one another as a community of faith. But then what does that look like to the community around us? Are we actually sharing the gospel outside of politics, just sharing the gospel through our lives of love, hospitality, generosity. Are are we engaged in ministries of mercy and justice to our communities? Are we loving our neighbors as God wants us to love? So for me, when you start looking through all that list of things that I think God prioritizes, like I don't have time for a lot more. Because if we wanna do that well, and please the Lord and bless our communities, Whether it's the local church community inside or the community in which we live outside and we don't have a lot of time for some of these other conversations i'm not saying those are unimportant it's just. It's just a matter of priority and then, based on that priority, then we proportion out our time talent and treasure. For those secondary tertiary things that are important, but as the name implies secondary tertiary, and so I think. When we have the right perspective and our priorities set, then I think we don't have as much, I don't know, passion? Is that another piece? Sorry. As much, we're not as impassioned over secondary and tertiary things because we're more hopefully impassioned by the primary things God called us to do. So, you know, in in our theological vision for ministry, we talk, what does it look like? It, It talks about really, you know, you know good corporate worship empowered corporate worship we talk about evangelistic effectiveness we talk about what does it mean to be a countercultural community we talk about the integration of faith and work we talk about you know doing doing the acts of justice and mercy we list at least those five things as ways in which TGC thinks about our interaction with with culture and what does it mean to really be a blessing uh, to our communities based on our own convictions and so maybe that's just one way to try to summarize uh, my thoughts about that walter and i apologize this is long but mm-hmm. hopefully that might give us some more things to chew on yeah. and pray about
0: it's very very helpful Julius. thank you um i want to circle back to yet another issue in your opening comments uh that you raised that uh, caught my attention and that is the global impact of the gospel Co- coalition and in fact the Predominance of the global church in your readership. Um, and I want to tie that to your own personal experience. How has your experience as a Korean-American, Korean-American Christian, Korean-American pastor, leader, informed the ways that you navigate faith and culture? And what is it that the church in America should be, can be, must learn from our global brothers and sisters? Mm, that's,
1: a, that's a great question. I think... One of the things that has astounded me in taking this this role is how uniquely God is using parts of my past that, to be honest, I was not very proud of, nor did I want to emphasize. Uh, how God is actually using even some of the brokenness and difficulties of my life for his glory and for the good of the organization, namely my Korean American heritage. You know, growing up as a Korean American in America as a minority in a largely white space, you know, I tried so desperately to not be Korean. And I was when I was growing up, frankly, I was filled with a lot of self-hatred. I hated the way I looked. I hated my name. You know, I hated just every aspect of being Korean because I didn't fit in. And I lived in a culture that didn't really help me fit in. And so I, but then that, all of those experiences of being a bicultural American, Korean and American, now I see the Lord taking me through all of that as a way to shape me and form me to be hopefully a more compassionate person, but that understands the plight of those who are in the minority whatever situation it may be because of gender, race, ethnicity, whatever it may be, and I think, hopefully I bring to this role that kind of sensitivity and compassion, especially for those who are often overlooked marginalized and frankly they don't matter that because that's how I felt, frankly, and so I wrestled with that growing up and I and I hope that that kind of. Those difficulties will help me be just a more compassionate sensitive leader uh for the organization but also i also think positively you know now that i'm i'm in one way i i'm american but i'm not american i'm like this hyphenated i'm a korean hyphen american and because of that i i feel a little bit more of a freedom i think to to be more if i could lord willing with God's god's grace to be more prophetic right to be able to speak into maybe Areas where where culture has captivated our church to the in the wrong way and say, you know what? I don't think the Christians in China or the Christians in Brazil struggle with this issue. I know that I as a Korean American don't quite connect with this issue because of my own history. And I find that that's a good way for me to speak in a way prophetically and say, you know what? We here in America, we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the solutions. And this is where we can learn from Christians all over the world, because their approach to this issue will be slightly different. And they can bring their vision, their creativity, their imagination, their understanding, their knowledge, their wisdom to bear upon this. And then somehow together, we might come up with even a better solution to this particular issue that we think is so pressing here in North America. And so I think both that kind of compassion because of my own difficulties growing up for those who, who face challenges, but also this ability to speak as a bicultural person prophetically, because I don't really belong here. I think is it has been a helpful way to look at how God in this unique time and place providentially has put me into this role, you know, largely, you know, American led, you know, American founded, you know, and. Um, so I hope that God would give me the wisdom and the courage to be both, you know, uh, uh, compassionate on the one hand, but also prophetic on the other because of the unique bicultural experiences and history that I've had. And so I'm still learning that, Walter, but that's 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 kind of my, my hope.
0: Julius, as our country becomes more uh, racially, ethnically diverse, as the church is experiencing... Pockets of vitality uh, in different parts of the country that often are introduced because of um, vibrant immigrant churches. Uh, that that globalization of faith, you know, sending out missionaries to reach the far shores for Jesus is actually coming back <laughs> to our own shores here in America, and it's um, maybe circling back to the issue that you talked about that the re-evangelization, re-discipleship of the church in America may also be coming from these various communities that are helping us see eh, this might be a culturally conditioned way of living out the Christian faith that in a monocultural America or monocultural parts of America, you haven't had to think differently. Um, but now we get not, the, not just the challenge, but the benefit, the blessing, of um seeing that whoa followers of jesus actually may cut up this issue slice the pie in different ways um and that's a real benefit that you seem to be pointing to that probably over the course of the next decade or two we're still going to be working out and and i find um great hope in that um
1: that's that's, so, that's so good, Walter. And as you speak, I can't help but say amen, first of all, amen, and, and and recognize that, but that requires at least from our perspective, from my vantage point, let me speak for myself, a tremendous amount of humility, right? Because the way we even thought about missions, evangelism is always us to them, right? So we're going to take all the benefits we have here in North America or the United States and our version of Christianity to the world. And that version of christianity mo- mo- wonderful successes like like korea right i'm i'm a product of wonderful protestant missions in korea and we, we thank god for that and yet we can't help but see that that protestant mission also had its fair share of cultural captivity as well and so you know we we need to be thoughtful and wise and nuanced about that and say okay it's different now should we now be humble enough to like learn from korean missionaries who are coming back to the states and helping us understand christianity or what the christian life is all about or the christians from nigeria or the christians from brazil or the et cetera et cetera now the big i think the big force is going to be the christians from china and will china be the next major force of foreign missions depending upon you know the political situation and stuff and what what can we learn from our chinese brothers and sisters about what constitutes quote unquote real christianity And I think we need to just have much humility to say, Lord, we need to learn. Give me the humility to learn from my brothers and sisters from all around the world. Because I think, like you said, it's only going to lead to even just a better understanding of what the scriptures say and how to live that out in our lives. Mm -hmm.
0: That's so rich. Julius, is there um, anything else that brings you hope as you look at today's evangelical community? Yeah,
1: actually organizations like an ae frankly because i still and I, walter has not paid me to say this so i just want you to all know this but you know, there's something really beautiful about organizations like NA, and if I could put that in the same category as TGC, because we're a, we're we're not denominationally bound. Nothing against denominations. I think denominations are necessary and needed for groups of Christians to work together and band together for a common cause. But I think we're entering into an age, Walter, if I can say this, where we need to cross some of our denominational boundaries and say. What divides, not, don't, don't answer the question, what divides us or what makes us unique from one another? That's fine. But I think what's more important for the next generation is what unites us. Because I think if we actually sit down and talk and pray together, laugh together, eat together, right? For me, it's always about eating. Because when you eat, people's guards come down, you eat, well, you eat together, you talk together, you pray together, you laugh together, you cry together, and then you find, wow, we have a lot more in common. That's really beautiful why don't we leverage that? Things that unify us around the gospel. So whether it's TGC around that or NAE, just to me, I feel very hopeful because I'm sensing that God may want to do a work through organizations like NAE and the gospel coalition that transcend denominational boundaries and say, brothers and sisters from all various parts of the church, what can we do To work together to maintain our integrity around the gospel but also showcasing the humility that the gospel forces us to and that hopefully as a result of that we can be more clear and have more clarity of evangelism and discipleship for the next generation so that through that maybe there might be even more unity among the church because let's face it we're not seeing a lot of unity right now Walter and I just feel like I'm burdened by that I'm burdened by you know Jesus's high priestly prayer in John 17 and his his desire that the church would be one. And you know I'm not naive to think that that's going to happen in our lifetime or even before Jesus comes back. But what would it look like if all of us in leadership positions in our churches, in our homes, in our organizations say, "What if that was our goal—the high priestly prayer of Jesus?" You know what was that? What if that were our goal? And I'm not trying to be reductionistic and say that's our only goal. But what would it look like if we can? find more unity around the things that unite us rather than divide us. And so so all that to say, I'm really hopeful because of organizations like NAE and TGC and what they're trying to do.
0: Well, thank you very much. How much better we all would be if we just gather around and have some Korean barbecue together. (laughs) Amen to
1: that again. It would change the world, Walter. If we could just introduce Korean barbecue to more people, I think that would change the world.
0: Uh, Our guest on today's conversation has been Julius Kim. I'm Walter Kim, and on behalf of us all, thank you, Julius. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use Influence for Good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.